Today's broadcast originally aired on October 25th, 2023. And I believe that God has ordained and allowed each one of us to be brought here for this specific moment in this time. I believe that each one of us has a huge responsibility today to use the gifts that God has given us to serve the extraordinary people of this great country, and they deserve it. Well, what did the extraordinary people of this country do to deserve Mike Johnson? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. We'll discuss. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. And once again, we've got so much show for you today that I don't even have time to read all the affiliates. <laughs> You'll just have to trust me on that. Blanketing Planet Earth, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Coming up, we have been, frankly, so busy with so much uh, constantly breaking news at this point from the wars in Israel and Ukraine to climate crisis fueled disasters around the globe to Donald Trump's nonstop legal woes to a dysfunctional Republican majority U.S. House that is either trying to shut down Congress entirely or trying to figure out how to reopen it after firing their own speaker well, with all of that and more, we've all but ignored the fact that our packed, stolen, and wildly corrupted right-wing U.S. Supreme Court is now back in business and doing their damage for their newest destructive term despite months of exposure of its farthest-right members like Sam Alito and Clarence Thomas having taken what amounts to millions of dollars in luxury gifts from right-wing billionaires with business before the court, even as those same justices refuse to recuse themselves from those cases. Uh, one such case is coming up very soon before the high court, and it appears to be yet another case that is rigged in advance to, well, forward the agenda of those right-wing billionaires. It's a case that could undercut the popular ideas forwarded by progressives like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, for a small tax on the wealth of millionaires and billionaires. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Michael Hiltzik will join us momentarily to make sense of, uh, or I don't know, perhaps warn us of uh, that case. Uh, but first, I need to hit both Otis and Johnson today, which I realize... Desi Doyen sounds like a pharmaceutical company or something. <laughs> Actually, yes, it does. But Otis, uh, we'll start there, is a Cat 5 hurricane that stunned scientists since we last spoke on this program. And Johnson is Mike Johnson, apparently the Republicans' new far-right speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. But we need to start, as I said, with Otis, which, uh, Desi, you mentioned on yesterday's Green News report, right, uh, described it as a tropi as tropical storm Otis threatening the Pacific West Coast of Mexico. I think yes, but it suddenly turned from a tropical storm into a catastrophic 
Category 5 hurricane in less than 24 hours. In 12 hours, as a matter of fact. As AP reports at this hour, Hurricane Otis ripped across Mexico's southern Pacific coast as a powerful Category 5 storm early Wednesday, tearing through buildings in the resort city of Acapulco, sending sheets of earth down steep mountainsides and leaving large swaths of the southwestern state of Guerrero without power or cell phone service. While little is known about possible deaths or the full extent of the damage right now, the main highway, as it turns out, into Acapulco is currently impassable. Experts are calling Otis the strongest storm in history to make landfall along the eastern, uh, the, the, well, the eastern, eastern Pacific, Pacific coast, which the is the west coast of Mexico. Thank you. Yeah. But the fact that little is known right now at this hour is also because so few media folks were actually stationed there, given how quickly this storm whipped up. They didn't have time to get there. By mid-morning Wednesday, after crashing ashore, Otis has weakened to a tropical storm, yet many on the coast have been left reeling. On Tuesday, Otis took many by surprise when it rapidly strengthened from a tropical storm to a powerful Category 5. That's the highest category as it tore along the coast. According to reports when we went to air yesterday, Des, uh, I went back and looked at what AP was reporting uh, 24 hours ago or so. Uh, quote, Otis was expected to be near hurricane strength before reaching Mexico's coast early Wednesday. Near hurricane strength. Yeah. Not a Category 5 hurricane. Right. Now, imagine you're in Acapulco. You wake up on Tuesday morning and you hear, okay, so we got, you know, a tropical storm, pretty busy, that's headed our way. And then, you know, you go to bed on Tuesday night to find out, oh, we have a Cat 5 heading right for us. Uh, It's incredible. Uh, Researchers tracking the storm told AP that uh, it broke records for how quickly it intensified at a time when climate change has exacerbated devastating weather events like this one. And in fact, uh, Des, after noting on our Green News report uh, yesterday that Otis, then a tropical storm, was set to become the fourth major storm to slam the Pacific coast of Mexico this month alone, the fourth storm, you uh, just happened to move to a story about a new study by scientists regarding rapidly intensifying hurricanes being a real thing, I think (laughs) is how you described it. Yes, it's a real thing. It really is happening. And this study was for the Atlantic, not the Pacific, Mm. but I imagine that the data is going to bear out for the Pacific. But in the Atlantic, yes, uh, hurricanes are intensifying more rapidly and they're doing it more frequently and they're turning into major storms, Category 3, or higher in less than 24 hours, which, of course, as we've noted, gives coastal communities very little time to prepare, much less mount evacuations. This is this is different. This is new. This has not, uh, we haven't seen this before. Yeah, and the, just to make this out clear yeah. this and unusual this is, the ocean waters are so warm off the coast of Mexico, they were actually 87 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> That's rocket fuel for storms. And the problem is, when they intensify this quickly, as we see now in Acapulco, there's a lack of time for residents to prepare and evacuate in such cases. Yeah. 
Uh, quote, it's one thing to have a Category 5 hurricane make landfall somewhere when you're expecting it or expecting a strong hurricane, but to have it happen when you're not expecting anything to happen is truly a nightmare, according to Brian McNoldy, a hurricane researcher at the University of Miami. Now, Acapulco is a city of nearly one million people at the foot of steep mountains, and we had uh, just a Two weeks ago, I think a week or two ago, we had two major hurricanes hit the West Coast. Um, of Mexico. Of Mexico. In two days. In two days. And uh, I think in both cases, they hit uh, fairly uh, rural areas where there wasn't a lot of uh, Not as many people, people. or yeah. property to damage. This is different. Um, there's Acapulco with a million people, and between its uh, resorts, there are dozens of small towns uh, and villages there. So uh, there's really no precedent for a storm apparently hitting this strong on the Pacific coast of Mexico. There's even less precedent for a storm like this in Acapulco, which has never experienced more than a Category 1 storm. Otis, according to the National Hurricane Center, was stronger than Hurricane Pauline, which hit Acapulco in 1997. It destroyed swaths of the city. It killed more than 200 people. Hundreds of others were injured in flooding and mudslides at the time. So we are hoping at this point for the best as uh, communications are hopefully soon restored and roads into the area are made passable. But, of course, we fear the worst. Um, and all of that today as another climate denier has risen to power back here in the U.S. Yay. Um, also, I guess, spinning up since we got off air yesterday, just after Republican Majority Whip Tom Emmer dropped out as the Republican nominee to become the new Speaker of the House. That's where we were on our previous broadcast. Well, just after that, the Republicans selected their fourth nominee, Congressman Mike Johnson of Louisiana. Uh, on, and as of uh, Wednesday afternoon, Republicans actually succeeded in electing him this time as the new Speaker of the House. Now, I had never heard of this guy, to be frank, but uh, a friend of mine may have best characterized the situation when he texted me this afternoon to say, quote, seems like they found something. <clears throat> quote, seems like they found someone horrible enough for all of the GOP to vote for, which <laughs> yeah. sounds about right, unfortunately. So first, uh, since it will likely get, I think, the least coverage of our new House Speaker, Des, uh, he's a Republican from Louisiana. So I think by uh, statute, he's got to be a climate change denier. <laughs> Am I correct about that? Yeah, he is totally a climate science denier. And by uh, the latest data that I've seen so yeah. far is that uh, the donations that he's received, the campaign cash mm. that he's gotten from the fossil fuel industry yeah. is more than he's received from any other industry. Yeah, and of course, well. Louisiana is a an oil and gas state. And I bet he's about to get a whole lot more from them suddenly for oh, some reason. Yes. In addition to being a climate denier, Johnson was an architect of the House GOP's opposition to certifying the 2020 presidential election. 
So he's a uh, democracy and elections denier as well. Johnson, who is 51 years of age, contested the results of the 2020 election. Uh, He objected to certifying Biden's electoral win and was one of the architects of the legal attack on the election that consisted of arguing that states voting accommodations made during the pandemic were unconstitutional. He led a group of 126 Republican lawmakers in filing an amicus brief to the Supreme Court, alleging that authorities in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan had, quote, usurped the constitutional authority of state legislatures when they made it easier for people to vote during a pandemic. That was a complaint that was rejected, however, by the even by the far-right Supreme Court. Johnson is a close ally of Donald Trump. Well, that's a given, of course, at this point. Who in the Republican House conference isn't by now? But this guy, uh, he actually served on Trump's legal defense team during his two impeachment trials in the Senate. He has called the criminal indictments against Donald Trump, which include a federal case relating to his attempts to steal the 2020 election. He's called those cases bogus and has said the legal and political systems have treated Trump unfairly. He is strongly anti-abortion and has celebrated the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. He told Fox News on the day that it was overturned, quote, There is no right to abortion in the Constitution, and he called the decision a, quote, great, joyous occasion. After the uh, decision, he celebrated when his state of Louisiana instituted a law following the uh, decision to uh, ban abortions altogether, noting on Twitter, quote, thanks be to God, perform an abortion and get imprisoned at hard labor. For one to ten years and find ten thousand to one hundred thousand dollars. Yay! The anti-abortion nonprofit group Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America gives Johnson an A plus ranking on this issue. Democratic Congressman Don Beyer of Virginia, after Johnson was nominated by the GOP caucus last night, he tweeted, quote, Johnson is one of the biggest anti-choice extremists in Congress. He wants to ban all abortions without exception nationally, I guess, to the point of criminalization with prison sentences. Of course, he cheered that if you perform an abortion in Louisiana, you will get hard labor for up to 10 years. The uh, House Judiciary Committee Democrats, uh, Mike Johnson is uh, a member of the House Judiciary Committee, or I guess he was before he became Speaker. I think he was second after Jim Jordan there, uh, ranking. Um, the House Judiciary Democrats, however, they noted uh, that, quote, during a recent House Judiciary Committee hearing, Congressman Mike Johnson attacked Roe v. Wade, insisting that if only women were compelled to bring more, quote, able-bodied workers into the world, Republicans wouldn't need to slash Social Security and Medicare. 
That's the new U.S. House Speaker. Yes, uh, if only you can force more women to give birth, then we wouldn't have we wouldn't to have these cut problems. Social Security and Medicare. Here's another way we wouldn't have to. Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of immigrants who actually want to come in and actually are able-bodied workers, and they would like to work. Oh no, no, no! It's what? all women's fault. What? No, that's true. Hate to miss a chance to blame women. Yeah. Uh, Naturally, of course, Johnson also supports LGBTQ restrictions. He's positioned himself on the far right of the political spectrum in the House, even within the current already far right Republican conference. Notably, he introduced legislation last year modeled after Florida's don't say gay bill. That would have prohibited discussion of sexual orientation and gender identity. You know, one of those champions of the Constitution and free speech, I guess. The Human Rights Campaign, a pro-LGBTQ civil rights group, gave Johnson a score of zero in his latest congressional scorecard. He also cruelly opposes gender-affirming care for minors, despite the fact that almost all legitimate health care bodies, including the American Academy of Pediatrics, say that gender-affirming care is an appropriate form of treatment for people, including minors who identify as transgender. And Johnson, who serves on the House Armed Services Committee, was one of 57 lawmakers, all of them Republicans, who voted against further aid to Ukraine. You know, to help defend democracy against fascist imperialism. Other than that, he is a great guy, I'm sure. So all of the things that various Republicans pretended to oppose about Jim Jordan uh, when he was uh, running uh, and losing three times to become the uh, the, uh, House Speaker, uh, all of those things that Republicans, these so-called moderate Republicans opposed about Jim Jordan are actually positions that Mike Johnson shares with Jim Jordan and shares them in spades. So they weren't really troubled by Jim Jordan's opposition to, for example, certifying the Electoral College victory of Joe Biden, as Colorado's Ken Buck claimed just last week. Apparently they were just troubled that America knew all of that about Jim Jordan. Because they just made a guy speaker of the House with the exact same and even arguably farther right positions than Jim Jordan. But hey, you know, at least America isn't already mad about Mike Johnson. So that's cool. We can elevate him. I mean, I really think that's what it was about. I think it was about the fact that, oh, they knew that uh, Jim Jordan was a loon. Nobody realizes yet that Mike Johnson is also a loon. So we can go ahead and. Make him the Speaker of the House. Before America finds out. So I think my friend had it about right when he said uh, it seems like they found someone horrible enough for all the GOP to vote for. The behavior of that House GOP conference on Tuesday night was also pretty disgusting as a whole. They held a a press conference after they had nominated Mike Johnson to become a Speaker. Uh, They held a press conference and a whole bunch of folks from the conference were there jammed into the room with him to show their support for their new nominee. Rachel Scott of ABC News tried to ask a question uh, at at this press conference about whether Johnson stands by his efforts to try and overturn the 2020 election. And she was booed and literally told to shut up 
by North Carolina's Virginia Fox. Mr. Johnson, you helped lead the efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. Shut up! Next question. Shut up! Did you hear her? Yeah. Next question. Telling a member of the press to shut up, who asks a question, if he stands behind his position to challenge the election of the president of the United States. A legit question that the GOP leadership should have been shut ready for. Shut up! Shut <laughs> up, Desi. Rachel Scott tried again, this time to ask Johnson another seemingly legitimate question, if he would support aid to Ukraine and Israel. It didn't go much better. You asked your question. Go away. We're not doing policy tonight. Any any other questions? (laughs) We're not. We're not doing policy tonight. (laughs) Go away, media. So, you know, I, I, I. This is uh, this is newly anointed House Speaker Mike Johnson and his conference, who apparently was not doing much policy on Wednesday either. That after Republicans following more than three weeks of trying, finally elected a new House speaker to allow the House to finally reopen for business again. In his first remarks uh, as speaker, Johnson, a far-right fundamentalist Christian, suggested his selection was ordained by God. I want to tell all my colleagues here what I told the Republicans in that room last night. I don't believe there are any coincidences in a matter like this. I I believe that Scripture, the Bible, is very clear that that God is the one that raises up those in authority. He raised up each of you, all of us. And and I believe that God has ordained and allowed each one of us to be brought here for this specific moment in this time. This is my belief. I believe that each one of us has a huge responsibility today to use the gifts that God has given us to serve the extraordinary people of this great country, and they deserve it. They deserve it. They deserve all that they're going to get, I Mm. guess. Uh, Luckily, I guess, uh, God has also made New York Congressman Hakeem Jeffries leader of the Democratic (laughs) opposition in the House. And uh, he was happy to discuss policy in response to Johnson's elevation to speaker on Wednesday, vowing the Democrats would continue to hold the line to preserve and protect the rights of all Americans, along with Social Security and Medicaid and Medicare, and calling out Republicans for their continuing election denial. House Democrats will continue to push back against extremism in this chamber and throughout the country. House Democrats will continue to protect Social Security, protect Medicare, protect Medicaid, protect our children, protect our climate, protect low-income families, protect working families, protect the middle class, protect organized labor, protect the LGBTQ community, protect our veterans, protect older Americans, protect the Affordable Care Act, protect the right to vote, protect the peaceful transfer of power, protect our democracy, and protect a woman's freedom to make her own reproductive health care decision. These are blue lines in the sand, and we will work hard to make sure that they are never crossed. Let me conclude with an observation about the state of our democracy. 
Joe Biden won the 2020 presidential election. He's doing a great job under difficult circumstances, and no amount of election denialism will ever change that reality. Not now, not ever. That's Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries in the House on Wednesday. Uh, boy, you know what? He'd make a great House Speaker, wouldn't he? <laughs> yeah, but that's not where we are today. Not where we are, not today. We will have to leave it right there for now. I suspect we'll have more thoughts on that in the days ahead. So we need to uh, take a quick break here. We're going to move from one corrupted Republican caucus in the House to another in the U.S. Supreme Court as they prepare to legislate from the bench to prevent pro- progressive tax policy that, according to Pulitzer Prize-winning business columnist Michael Hiltzik, he joins us next right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Hey, this is Brad. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast. It's strange that we use that song so often when we're uh, talking about the Supreme Court. Yeah, Go sadly. Figure. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. In recent months and years on this program, really, particularly following the Republican packing of a corrupted right-wing Supreme Court majority, uh, we have discussed the far-right so-called conservative industry that has emerged over the last decade or two to basically gin up challenges to legal and constitutional issues opposed by the right. Groups funded by right-wing billionaires essentially find or even, uh, to be honest, create plaintiffs to claim that they have been harmed by something or another in cases that are clearly tailor-made to come before the very close friends of those right-wing billionaires that now sit on the high court. There is perhaps no better example of that than a case just last term in which a woman who designed web pages for weddings, or at least claimed that she hoped to someday, claimed that a Colorado civil rights law would force her to make web pages for same sex couples, which she had a religious objection to. Never mind that she hadn't actually been asked to create such a website and that an email the petitioners claimed to have uh, have been sent to her requesting such a site was proven to be completely fraudulent. Never mind all of that. The packed, stolen and corrupted right wing Supremes were more than happy to take the case and shut down this outrageous violation of the woman's supposedly constitutionally protected religious freedoms to discriminate against imaginary customers that she did not have in a business that she was not yet even in. 
on the basis of those pretend customers' sexual orientation. That's just one example. But the right-wing legal mill that now manufactures these tailor-made cases for the friendly Supreme Court supermajority has yet to be slowed down, despite a spate of blockbuster reporting in recent months from ProPublica and others revealing the exceedingly close ties to the tunes of millions of dollars in luxury gifts and travel and sometimes just out-and-out cash that has been lavished on Republican appointees to the high court. Relationships that have seemingly cemented the cozy friendship between those who run and fund these right-wing so-called conservative legal outrage mills and the judges, actually those on both the Supreme Court and Republican appointees on the lower federal courts as well, who are all too happy, it seems, to take up these cases now and find for their friends who bring them in, even before there's evidence that the petitioners have actually faced any harm at all. That used to be enough to uh, determine that they had no standing to bring such a case at all, but mm, so much for precedent, allowing for discrimination against Civil rights laws, shutting down constitutional rights to abortion, gutting the ability for the EPA to assure clean air and water by regulating the fossil fuel industry. Well, that's all you know been bad enough. But now it seems that this same scam is playing out to block laws and regulations that haven't even been adopted yet. As the L.A. Times business columnist Michael Hiltzik explained last week, it's getting harder and harder to pretend that the U.S. Supreme Court is much more than an instrument to protect the wealth of America's corporations and its richest citizens. The latest signal is the court's decision to take a once obscure tax case known as Moore v. United States, On its face, the case involves the objection by Charles and Kathleen Moore, Washington state residents, who have objected to a $15,000 tax bill that they received as investors in a small Indian corporation. But there's much more at stake, writes Hiltzik. The conservative anti-tax advocates backing the Moores are hoping to use this case to stifle the nascent movement in favor of a wealth tax on the richest Americans. Hiltzik explains that the anti-tax gang's targets are proposals, proposals, not even enacted legislation, but proposals by folks like Senators Bernie Sanders of Vermont and Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, among others, to levy taxes on assets with accumulated value but undistributed gains, such as art and collectibles and real estate and stock and bond holdings that have not been sold. Here, for example, is Senator Warren during a Democratic presidential primary debate back in late 2019 describing the very popular idea. Let's start with the wealth tax, the idea of a two-cent tax on the great fortunes in this country, $50 million and above. For two cents, what can we do? We can invest in the rest of America. We can provide universal child care, early childhood education for every baby in this country age zero to five. Universal pre-K for every three-year-old and four-year-old and raise the wages of every child care worker and preschool teacher. We can cancel student loan debt. But think about the economic impact of that. You leave two cents with the billionaires, they're not eating more pizzas. They're not buying more cars. 
We invest that 2% in early childhood education and child care. We can increase productivity in this country, and we can start building this economy from the ground up. That's how we build it in small towns. That's how we build it in rural America, and that's how we build it in urban America, an economy that works Brief answers. not for Wall Street, but that works for Main Brief Street. responses. Well, that may be a popular idea on Main Street, at least, but it is nowhere near being passed into law at this time, but that does not seem to matter. As Hiltzik notes in The Times, the petitioners in Moore v. U.S. are explicit about the goals of using this case to block that proposal. The conservative Manhattan Institute, well, they're not all that conservative, frankly, the way they seem to be playing fast and loose with the actual text of the Constitution. Uh, That institute warned in one of two friend of the court briefs that it has filed to support the Moors, quote, as efforts to design new federal tax systems with potentially troubling constitutional infirmities continue to pick up steam. It is up to the court to, quote, clarify the limits of Congress's taxing power before the train has begun rolling unstoppably downhill. But is it up to the court? One of the rock-bottom principles of that same court used to be that they would not hear cases in which nobody has actually been harmed yet or on theoretical, conjectural harms that petitioners might suffer in the future under not yet existing laws or regulations. But This court has been in the precedent-busting business now for some time, ever since Republicans managed to pack three far-right wingers onto the bench to give themselves a 6-3 supermajority that can essentially, well, do whatever it wants at this point. Legal precedent and stare decisis be damned. And what does all of this mean for the popular, if yet, unrealized idea of a wealth tax on millionaires and billionaires. Joining us now is Michael Hiltzik, the longtime Pulitzer Prize winning business columnist and investigative journalist at the Los Angeles Times and author of many books, including most recently Iron Empires, Robber Barons, Railroads and the Making of Modern America. Mr. Hiltzik, it has been too long, but welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Uh, thanks for having me, Brad. Uh, thank you, sir. I, I'm not a uh, I'm not a business guy, but you are. Can you start here by explaining, just in layman's terms, that even I can understand the general basis for this case, which will be heard uh, in December, uh, before we'll then get into several of the larger picture ideas that I believe are raised by it. Uh, sure. Uh, the, the case originated, uh, curiously enough. Uh, as a um, a challenge to the 2017 Republican tax cuts mm-hmm. that were uh, uh, enacted by the Republican Congress and signed by Donald Trump. Um, the, one of the provisions of the Tax Cut Act was that uh, it, it, it was a provision that aimed to persuade corporations to bring back into the United States sort of stateless income that they had. This, mm-hmm. These were profits that multinational corporations had earned overseas, and they were keeping overseas to avoid mm-hmm. uh, American taxes. So the Tax Cut uh, and Jobs Act, as it was called, basically cut the, cut the tax rate on, 
uh, on that income if it was brought back into the United States. But it also, since that was going to represent a big loss for the American Treasury, it also imposed a one-time tax on the recovered and repatriated income mm-hmm. that was basically applied to income from foreign corporations that were majority owned by Americans. Mm-hmm. Now, one of those corporations was an Indian corporation that basically uh, distributed uh, farm equipment and other equipment to lower income Indian communities uh, for for a profit. And among the owners, the, the large shareholders of this company was this couple, Charles and Kathleen Moore. Mm-hmm. So under under the law, they basically had to declare something in the neighborhood of $160,000 in overseas profits, and they were charged a tax of $15,000. Mm-hmm. Now, what they've what they've said, and so they paid the tax, and then they filed this lawsuit in which they said that, well, you know, we never actually received this money. It was imputed profits to the corporation, which held on to the profits. They never paid us in cash, so it's not realized income. And they said, under the law, the income that is subject to tax is realized. That is, you get it, uh, you get it in a form, you know, mm-hmm. cash or checks that you can put in your pocket and then use to spend in, in however you wish. Mm-hmm. They said this didn't qualify, and we want the court to rule that unrealized income like this is not taxable. And that's where we are now. That's uh-huh. the, the immediate issue that's going to be debated in oral argument in December before the Supreme Court. And and they have somehow been able to turn this uh, this case into that larger picture that I discussed in the introduction, uh, the idea that uh, assets, whether it's uh, fine art, real estate, stock options, et cetera, that has not been uh, realized, that they haven't cashed in or they haven't sold it, uh, that that cannot be taxed constitutionally somehow. That can't be uh, taxed at least until it is uh, sold or becomes realized income. Am I understanding that correctly, Michael? Yes, pretty much. But they are really just front people for an anti-tax coalition that's been representing them in court as this case went up through the federal court system and is presumably financing this litigation, and that the, the real goal of that anti-tax coalition is basically to get the Supreme Court to say, you know, to be taxable, income has to be realized. It has to be really in cash. And then the next step from that is to say that a wealth tax would obviously involve unrealized income. You know, we would be talking about stocks and bonds that haven't been sold, so they haven't been subject to the capital gains tax, but have gained in value. It would be art collections uh, and things like that. And that's the target Mm -hmm. of the wealth taxes that have been proposed by Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and others. And and do you believe, Michael, that this case specifically was was found? I mentioned these, you know, these legal mills that sort of gin up these cases, find uh, plaintiffs, find petitioners to bring these uh, claims. Do you think that this was one of those cases that was specifically brought in order to short circuit the possibility of a wealth tax in the future? I think that's the way to bet, basically. Um, the, the, the Moors are not just random plaintiffs. Uh-huh. 
Uh, Charles Moore is the son of a very well-known conservative uh, commentator and economist, and mm-hmm. in fact was a was very closely linked to this organization that's carrying the case through the court. So it's not random. I mean, I, I, it, it's, I don't know if we can say that these organizations went to the Moors and said, why don't you file this lawsuit? But certainly they knew the Moors. The Moors knew that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're all part of this, basically this cabal. And, and to be clear, this... Well, this tax that doesn't exist yet, a wealth tax, is, is, would be on, for example, uh, this is how millionaires and billionaires like Elon Musk, for example, how they largely avoid income taxes entirely by not taking uh, you know, actual salaries, but basically accumulating wealth through things like stock options and fine art and real estate, and then borrowing money, essentially tax-free, against those assets that that accumulated wealth, which they can then uh, use as collateral for those loans, and then they end up not paying any taxes at all. Am I understanding that scam sort of correctly? Uh, yes, I think you are. Um, you, you know, we know from tax statistics that the that the richer people get, or or you know, the higher they rank on the income scale, mm-hmm. the more their income is based not on wages which we all know, you know, we pay taxes on through the year with every paycheck, but on these sort of of investment mm-hmm. gains. And and as my old friend, the late Ed Kleinbard of USC, he used to say the capital gains tax, which is what's charged when these assets are sold, mm-hmm. um, is our only truly voluntary tax. And that's because the owner of stocks and bonds mm-hmm. can decide when to sell them and and if he or she doesn't sell them uh, before they, they die, then basically the embedded tax gets extinguished because mm-hmm. the value of that asset is stepped up to whatever it was worth when they died. Mm-hmm. And then their heirs basically have extinguished all of these embedded taxes, don't have to pay. It never gets paid. Right. But in the meantime, you know, you, if you have a, enough of these assets, you don't have to sell them to live on them. You can you, you can sell derivatives that aren't taxable. You can borrow against them from a bank, mm-hmm. and the loan is not a taxable asset. So you can do a lot. You can live on, on your assets without having to sell them. And that's a real that is a scam, and it's a scandal, and it's something that that tax uh, experts have tried to to overcome for years and years and years. And tax reformers have basically tried to eliminate. Uh, you know, basically, when you sell a stock and bond, you're already paying a, a discount tax rate on it when you sell it, and if you don't sell it and you don't have to sell it, and your heirs inherit it, then you get, the family gets this additional tax break. Mm-hmm. And it's it just, you know, two tax breaks for one asset, and it's really only for the wealthy. So, yes, it's a, it's a scam. And it is a scam. And that, I think, is what the, uh, the proposals for wealth taxes, as supported by progressives like Warren and Sanders, uh, are, are trying to work around, a loophole they're trying to close, it would actually tax those things. So, uh, Michael, you're a business columnist. Is there anything particularly bad or dangerous for the economy uh, if we did uh, institute a wealth tax? Or is it just bad news for those people wealthy enough to have to pay it? 
Well, it's the other way around. Uh, if we instituted a wealth tax, the estimates, the estimates from uh, Elizabeth Warren's people who include uh, economists at, at, uh, at Berkeley mm-hmm. say, you know, there could be trillions of dollars in revenue for the U.S. Treasury that could be captured just by uh, instituting a small, small percentage wealth tax on the richest families. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we're talking about families that have more than $5 million in assets, um, excuse me, $50 million in assets right. with an additional penny or two per dollar yes. on assets over and above a billion dollars. And if you are a believer in the idea that, you know, billionaires are a policy error, you know, we shouldn't have people who have that much money uh, basically without distributing it to their employees and their mm-hmm. shareholders and what have you, then a wealth tax is a very good thing. For raising, again, trillions of dollars based on, as uh, Elizabeth Warren likes to uh, cite, two additional cents uh, for each dollar. So how could this court case, Michael Hiltzik, uh, that is coming before the uh, Supreme Court, more v. United States, which exists before we even have such a tax, uh, such a tax. How could it actually prevent? I know a lot of people are very concerned about this. A lot of progressives. How could it actually prevent such a tax from being created in the future? Uh, presuming progressives were ever able to get their act together to uh, to see one adopted. Yes. So the concern of tax reformers, and in fact, progressives or anybody who cares about fairness in our economy is that the Supreme Court will once again sort of step out of its lane. Uh, Under the law, under the Constitution, the Supreme Court is only supposed to rule on concrete cases. Uh, Mm -hmm. Cases and controversies is the term that's that's generally used in the legal profession. That is only a plaintiff who has a true grievance that can't be solved in in any other any other way, mm-hmm. and that involves some sort of federal action or federal policy, can can bring a case to the federal judiciary. Judiciary, mm-hmm. it's got to be a real case. Uh, but as as you pointed out, in some of these other cases, including uh, the, the Colorado, uh, you know, web designers case, mm-hmm. there wasn't a real controversy. Um, she never actually had a contract to do what she didn't want to do. She was just sort of conjecturing that if she ever did want to do it, she <laughs> might might or might not run afoul of state law. So, so once again, a cabal of conservatives got her case before the Supreme Court, which stepped out of its role and said, yeah, um, you know, we're, we're going to treat this as a real case, a real grievance, and we're going to rule on it. Now, if they do this with the Moors, the, the, the same cabal that's brought the Moore's case has explicitly said we want the court to rule in advance on a wealth tax, even though there is no wealth tax anywhere here in America. So the fear is that the Supreme Court or a Supreme Court majority will say, oh, by the way, uh, you know, the Moors don't have to pay their tax. And if anybody tries to institute a tax of this sort in the future, it's going to be unconstitutional. Well, and that would basically undermine the, the effort for a, worth, a wealth tax. Which is really at the heart of this concern, although there's an even bigger picture here. Uh, you write 
Quote, to even casual observers, it looks as if the fix is in for the Moors among the Supreme Court's conservative majority. Start with Justice Samuel Alito. He was interviewed twice by one of the lead lawyers for the Moors, David B. Rivkin, for two Wall Street Journal op-eds, including one that amounted to an unapologetic tongue bath for the justice, as you wrote uh, in, in a piece that described Alito in the journal uh, in its headline as the Supreme Court's plain spoken defender. It praised him for his, quote, candor before then giving him twenty five hundred words to defend his rulings and ethics. And yet calls for Alito to recuse from this case after he's been interviewed twice by the lead lawyer. Uh, those calls have been rebuffed as Alito claims the interview was conducted by Rivkin, quote, as a journalist not an advocate. Is that even close to a plausible explanation for avoiding uh, the appearance of conflict of interest here? The reason that judges are supposed to recuse from such cases in the first place? I would say the answer is no. This case, the uh, Moore v. United States, basically just stinks to high heaven of all of the uh, the unethical and unsavory connections that conservatives on the Supreme Court have with very, very wealthy patrons. Mm -hmm. It's not just Alito, who, you know, who's been palling around with a lawyer bringing this case and, you know, and still hasn't recused himself from it. But, uh, you you know, you have uh, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas and other justices who are friends and pals with Paul Singer and Harlan Crowe. Uh, we we know you know them as uh, mm-hmm. you know billionaires. They're also major supporters of the Manhattan Institute, the right wing think tank that has already filed two friend of the court briefs with the Supreme Court on the Moore side. Paul Singer is the chairman yes. of the Manhattan Institute. Crow's wife Kathy Crow is a member of its board of trustees. So uh, you know basically. The miasma of basically of corruption really just uh, is laid all over this case. And I think that's one of the reasons that legal scholars who are watching this are very, very concerned that once again, the Supreme Court's conservative majority is going to step uh, out of its proper limited role Mm -hmm. and essentially legislate. Uh, and it, which which that seems to be the biggest problem, uh, frankly, uh, the, the, you know, I think it was Katanji Brown, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, maybe it was Kagan, I can't remember, but she recently uh, categorized it, I think, that the, as the, the Supreme Court uh, threatens to become little more than a super legislative branch that doesn't actually call balls and strikes anymore on laws adopted by Congress, but they're actually making law in their decisions, which is... And this is really the great con part of all of this, as I see it, or the the big judicial lie, if you will. Isn't that exactly what the right has been claiming for so long and even now uh, claiming they are opposed to when they, you know, assert that they oppose activist judges legislating from the bench? Isn't that exactly what they have purchased at this point on the Supreme Court, Michael Hiltzik? I I think that's true. Uh, Look, when when the Supreme Court... Uh, or any any federal court actually rules on something that is not a, a, a real case or a real controversy, then almost by definition, they are making new law. They are legislating. And that's something that under the Constitution, 
they are not supposed to do. And I have no idea. I've got just a minute or two left here, but I have no idea how this ever gets corrected, nor how it can be sustainable. President Biden has been generally opposed to what, you know, I describe as unpacking the court by expanding it to 13 justices. Is this sustainable if there is not reform brought to the court at this time? I mean, I approval for the Supreme Court has been plummeting. And it seems like we're headed towards a constitutional breakdown, a crisis at some point, uh, with the court losing all legitimacy if they sort of stay on this same course that they seem dead destined to remain on. Well, I would say that the court, the court's uh, legitimacy is, I don't know if it has any left. I mean, it's certainly at, at rock bottom. And we really do need to look back, you know, at the 1930s when the court the court's reputation was at at an ebb this low, and Franklin Roosevelt tried what was became known as the court packing scheme. Mm-hmm. Now, what happened then was, first of all, you know, it's one of the rare occasions when FDR sort of mishandled a uh, political initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've written about this in one of my books mm-hmm. uh, about the New Deal, but it was also a, a time when the, the threat was so concrete to the court that uh, wiser wiser minds on the court actually stepped back and uh chief justice charles evans hughes basically persuaded one of the conservatives on the court to reverse a a key ruling on uh, a minimum wage and from that point on the court stopped overruling new deal laws and New Deal initiatives. Now, we may come to that point. I'm not sure that in this case, which I think to most American laypersons will look a little nebulous, but certainly the court's rulings on Roe v. Wade Mm -hmm. and on gun rights uh, and on uh, other social issues have gone far afield, far beyond what the, the vast majority of Americans are comfortable with. And if it continues to do that, then something is going to have to give. And, you know, and I would point out that the size of the court, that is how many seats are on it, is under the Constitution, something that is entirely under the control of Congress and the president. Congress can enact a law that says we're going to expand the court so that we have more seats for progressives or, mm-hmm. you know, we can dilute the power of this conservative supermajority and if that can be enacted, then the court has basically nothing to say, and it will fundamentally have to change. And even in the, uh, you know, under FDR, merely the threat of the possibility of that, it wasn't successful, but it seems like that changed the course of the court somewhat, you know, which is which is why it's troubling that uh, I see President Biden saying, well, let's uh, put a blue ribbon commission on it. We'll talk about it. You know, they're not going to be able to expand the court right now anyway. They had to get over a filibuster. They had to get back control of the, uh, the the House and everything else. But it seems to me that a full court press calling out what this court is doing and at least pushing for reforms, that in and of itself, I'd like to think, does history tell us that that alone could uh, keep these folks at least in line for a while? I think, I, I think Biden has actually, at least, you know, in— rhetorically taken a cudgel against the Supreme Court majority on many occasions. Uh, I think it's probably judicious of him, so to speak, to not actually 
advocate specifically any particular change in the court structure or I mean there are any number of proposals that are out there to change the court or to limit its authority or what have you that would be legal under the Constitution I think probably he's keeping his powder dry but if if this sort of thing continues the point's going to come when you know a fundamental change in the structure of the court is favored by a majority of voters and if he can get, you know, if he's got a majority Congress, um, mm-hmm. uh, something like this might happen. And I think the court really does need to be careful. Um, and I think recently it's been a little bit more careful mm-hmm. about, uh, mm-hmm. you know, about its rulings on, on things like this, but not yes. careful. Enough. Yeah. Clarence Thomas actually recused himself recently on a case involving his wife. I guess that's uh somewhat sort of progress. Michael Hiltzik, Pulitzer Prize winning business columnist. I think that book you were talking about uh, is The New Deal, A Modern History from 2011. Did I guess that one right, Michael? You you got that exactly right. There you go. Buy it for Christmas and Hanukkah. Perfect time of year uh, and a perfect Supreme Court uh, to read it during. Uh, You can find uh, his work, of course, at the L.A. Times and I think still on Twitter at Hiltzik M. Michael Hiltzik, always great speaking with you, my friend. Okay, thanks for having me. Thank you. And uh, by the way, Des, while I was speaking with Michael there, uh, coming in on my phone just now, uh, breaking news, a friend's $267,230 loan to Justice Clarence Thomas for an RV was mostly, perhaps entirely, forgiven, Mm. raising ethical and potential tax issues. Oh, yeah. That's Clarence for you. All right, we got to get out. Uh, my thanks again to Michael Hiltzik. Thanks to my producer, Desi Doyen. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or just want to give it another listen or share it with someone you know, you can do so for free anytime at bradblog.com, all of which is made possible by those of you kind and generous enough to stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us on your public airwaves. Haven't heard from any right-wing billionaires there lately, but (laughs) our door is always open. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and sites still known as Twitter, I am the Brad Blog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. You're listening to The Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported. Thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1990. That was the day that eight of the ten unions at the New York Daily News went out on strike. The paper had had one of the highest daily circulations in the United States. The New York Daily News was owned by the Chicago-based Tribune Company. The strike began when management demanded major concessions from the delivery drivers, essentially forcing them out on strike. Seven more unions joined them on the picket line. In retaliation, management brought in scab labor. This caused the ninth union to join the walkout. The newspaper guild workers had planned to honor the picket lines, but not go on strike themselves. 
But according to an article in the Los Angeles Times, quote, said local guild president Barry Lipton, the editorial employees decided almost immediately at an afternoon meeting to go on strike rather than to work with any imported scabs and goons. Well-known journalist Juan Gonzalez was a strike leader for the local. By using replacement workers, daily news management was able to keep the paper in production. But they found it much more difficult to get the paper distributed. Even where they could make delivery, many newsstands refused to sell the struck paper. The New York Times blamed this on intimidation from the delivery drivers. But they also acknowledged that some refused distribution either out of sympathy for strikers or an unwillingness to offend pro-union customers. To support the strike, the unions put on a concert headlined by Lou Reed, along with Pete Seeger, Q-Tip from A Tribe Called Quest, and other musicians. The strike lasted for five months, prompting the Tribune to sell the paper. Under new management, the strike was finally settled. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com.